Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. For listeners familiar with the Scientific Sense podcast, today's format is a bit different. We have three experts rather than one guest, which has been the case for the last 59 episodes. Uh, we are also not discussing specific research papers, uh, but rather hope to accumulate the wisdom of the researchers over the years. Uh, we're going to focus on pandemics in general and COVID more specifically. And as usual, we will try to keep this apolitical uh, but we will look into the impacts of policy and discuss how we could improve as we encounter future pandemics. Welcome, Jeff, Fred, and Jim. We will do a quick uh, round of introductions. Uh, Jim, uh, would you like to start? Sure. Thanks, uh, Gil. My name is Jim Bashkin. I'm a professor of chemistry and biochemistry at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. And... Um, my career spans both industry and academia. I spent uh, 12 years at large chemical and pharmaceutical companies and um, the rest of my career in uh, academics. And I also started my own, uh, co-started my own small uh, pharmaceutical company working on uh, antiviral drug discovery and development. Great. Fred? Hi, I'm... Uh... Frederick Inglis. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. Um, my educational background is in biology. I'm particularly interested in evolutionary biology. Um, that includes kind of evolving infectious diseases. I mostly work on bacteria, but have some interest in viruses as well. Great. Jeff? Yeah, hi. My name is Jeff Smith. Um, I'm a biologist. I study the ecology and evolution of microorganisms. And I'm about to start in Fred's lab at uh, University of Missouri-St. Louis. Great. Yeah, so I want to start with something uh, fundamental. So the SARS um, coronavirus 2, COVID, uh, it's an RNA virus. Uh, now, there are differing opinions as to if an RNA-based entity can be considered live as they cannot replicate by themselves. Is this really a semantic uh, question or is there something more to it? Uh, so I've, I've thought a, a lot about this, um, it, and, and in my experience, and among the colleagues that I've spoken with this about, um, I have yet to meet a microbiologist who thinks that viruses are not alive. They're made of the same things that, that other cellular organisms are. They're made out of proteins and nucleic acids. They have the same kinds of genes. They work the same kind of ways, and they 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 evolve in the same kinds of ways. So I don't think as biologists, we have a whole lot to gain or any insight to gain by separating them out from the, the, the rest of bio biology. biology. Um, it's true that they do require cellular organisms to reproduce, but all organisms are dependent on other organisms to reproduce, except for maybe some photosynthetic microbes. Yeah. Like you. So I don't see that the fact that they eat things from the inside rather than the outside is being 
fundamental in any particular kind of way. Okay, okay. Yeah, without knowing a lot about that, Jeff, you know, I was thinking, um, are there any any sort of uh, analogous things that we see uh, between an RNA-based entity and, and cancer? Jim, I know that you have done a lot of work in this area. Um, and, you know, they, they seem to replicate very fast. And, uh, you know, is, is there any similarity there, Jim? Well... Um, you know, there, there could be, in, um, you know, there, um, there certainly can be mutations involved in, or I mean, there are mutations involved in, um, in cancers, um, viruses can mutate rapidly. They don't all mutate as rapidly as, as other as, as each other, I mean, some viruses mutate more rapidly than others, but uh, uh, some viruses cause cancer. Um, so there's definitely a crossover, for example, human papillomavirus, but that's only one of a number of uh, small DNA tumor viruses. And so um, uh, there are definitely uh, uh, crossover properties between viruses and cancer. Some viruses integrate into uh, human DNA, including RNA viruses like uh, HIV, and um, this can lead to cancers mm. for a variety of, of reasons, uh, having to do with the fact that human DNA is disrupted, as well as the fact that the immune system is completely disrupted or not completely, but largely disrupted in the case of AIDS. And yeah. so uh, there are definitely uh, crossover properties. I okay. don't know if I can say sim similarities, but, but exactly, but um, um, areas of, of, of common behavior, perhaps. Common behavior and especially mutations. So, so Jeff, do you want to set the stage for what we know about COVID and, and you know, there's sort of progression and mutation. Uh, there are multiple mutations they are already fighting. Uh, do we expect uh, this to mutate a lot faster? What the implications are? Well, I, I can tell you what I know about the, how COVID got, arrived in human populations and, and what, how we believe it's likely to evolve in human populations. Yeah. So, um, so COVID is a coronavirus and, and uh, coronaviruses in general, uh, the diversity of coronaviruses is in, is in general uh, hosted by bats, but other animals also pick up coronaviruses. Um, humans uh, have had coronaviruses in the past through SARS in 2003. There was the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome a while back. And there are a couple of coronaviruses already that cause human, cause the common cold. Um, this virus, so this coronavirus is distinct from those, but still part of the same family. In general, they seem to get into human populations, not necessarily directly from bats, but so often through an intermediate animal, like in, like palm civets for SARS, I think it was, in the camels in the case of the MERS virus. Uh, it's still unclear how the specifics of how COVID-19, the virus, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, how that arrived in human populations. Um, there are similar viruses in, in horseshoe bats and in pangolins, but so far none of them are an exact match. So it's possible that there is uh, some other intermediate in there as well. Um, sort of intermediate host? Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Um, so, so Fred, um, you know, uh, if you look at infectious diseases more broadly, um, what, what do we know? What's the current understanding of the evolution and emergence of infectious diseases worldwide? Yeah, I think the kind of, um, kind of one of the big driving concepts when people think about how diseases evolve is probably this um, transmission virulence trade-off hypothesis. Mm. So this is an idea that, uh, you know, you want to maximize you know, evolution is acting to maximize the spread of an infectious agent. That's good. If you're an infectious virus, bacteria, whatever, you want to get to new hosts. And so there's many things that are important there. You don't want to kill the host too quickly 
because if you mm. kill off all the hosts, then you can't spread. Um, but often to spread, it requires some kind of damage to the host. You know, diarrheal diseases causes diarrhea, and that can have devastating effects. Um, viral diseases require you to, you know, many of them respiratory require you to cough or sneeze to spread the virus. Yeah. Um, it's better if you kind of like lies up a bunch of lung tissue and people are coughing a lot, right? But if you kill too many people, you can't spread. So I think a classic example that's very interesting one actually is um, myxomatosis. So this is um, the disease causing agent in well, rabbits. And uh, it's really effective. In fact, it kills almost 99% of rabbits it infects. And so it was released um, presumably by some Australian farmers like in the 1900s in Australia to kill off this kind of devastating plague of rabbits. And at first, tremendous it killed off all these rabbits but over time they discovered that actually myxomatosis evolved lower virulence and stopped killing as many rabbits because it couldn't spread so these kind of hypervirulent strains would go extinct mm. so that's interesting when you have these kind of jumps from kind of bats or some intermediate um, kind of host to humans is <laughs> the first stage is a bit dicey we don't know what's going to happen it could be that virulence could increase it could be that it decreases um, but usually there's some kind of selection for your transmission and your variables. Those are the kind of, yeah, the two things yeah. that something's happening with. So that, that's, that's very interesting. So, uh, so if, you, if you take uh, some kind of a ratio, uh, this could be conceptual, but some kind of a ratio, transmission over virulence, you would see sort of, if you optimize that from the, from the virus's perspective or the infectious uh, entity's perspective, you would see some sort of a, uh, inverted u-shaped curve right it want to have sort of an optimum point between transmission and virulence uh, so that there's just enough time to to jump to the next next host and uh, and so this is an evolutionary trait uh, that so over time uh, by random mutations they they tend to get to that optimum point or what, what do we see what, what happens yeah absolutely so i mean it can be that you're so virulent you go extinct Yes. Um, so, you, you know, you see, like, you know, you might pop into the population, you kill everybody, you can't spread. And so then you go extinct in that population. But if there's enough time, then, yeah, you want often, often what we see well, is you see very virulent pathogens that become less virulent over time. I think that's the easiest one to observe because, you know, they did kill a lot of whatever the host organism is, and then they've stopped or they've reduced the amount of killing because there's been, you know, the hypervirulent strains have gone extinct. But, you know, equally, one can expect the opposite. If you transmit to new host and there is a lot of contact, you know, there's high population density, you know, for example, maybe you're in a city and there's humans, then in principle, one could increase, um, you could see selection for increased virulence. So both, both things can happen. It just depends on a lot of the life history traits or how the kind of infectious agent spreads. Mm -hmm. So some of the kind of most deadly diseases that we think of, um, so you can think of Bacillus anthracis, positive, you know, we think of anthrax, this has a crazy life history. So what happens is um, it infects ungulates or cows, and then it usually kills them. It produces loads of spores. So tens of billions of spores inside the cow, the cow dies. They can live in the dirt, the topsoil for hundreds of years, presumably until another cow comes and feeds on it. And mm -hmm. then they kill that cow and they do it again. That's why they can, because of their the way that they work, um, their biology, they can survive, they, you know, they can cause these like very virulent outbreaks of disease. Yeah, I, I hate to be cynical about this. So in this case, it seems like, um, you know, the younger population who are moving around have asymptomatic, um, uh, you know, asymptomatic uh, disease and the older population who are sort of protected, not moving mm -hmm. around, uh, actually have severe disease. So it seems like the virus has figured this out. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, <laughs> it's possible, right? So it doesn't seem the health consequences in younger people uh, don't seem to be as bad as in older people. That's probably true of many diseases. Um, yeah, it's, it's true for influenza, for example. Yeah. 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 yeah so, um, you know, the, the health consequences can still be severe in young people. It's just not... It's just that they're not severe as frequently, nearly as frequently in young people as they are in older people. Yeah. 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 So one criticism that that's out there, uh, Jim, is that, you know, there, there's so many people having differing opinions, even among scientists and professionals, let alone politicians. Uh, the, the public uh, has great difficulty figuring out who to believe 
and how to go about it. Um, what is your perspective uh, on that? I mean, this is not just for COVID, but more generally, how, how, how will we handle, it, handle this in the future? Well, I think that we need to have a national policy and that national policy needs to be divorced from politics. It needs to be based on science and public health considerations alone. Yeah. And um, other countries have managed to do this fairly successfully. Um, for example, uh, the countries in Europe. And, um, and they've been relatively nimble in reacting when they found that their policies are starting to uh, fray. For example, um, uh, Europe has just canceled vacations um, because they've seen that uh, they open society up too much and uh, the number of COVID cases started to increase again. And um, so, and, and this has been enacted over uh, uh, a wide number of countries and uh, quarantines have been put in place and borders have been closed and, um, and this didn't take a lot of hand wringing or um, months of uh, arguing back and forth. Uh, people think of the European Union as uh, an unwieldy organization, but the individual countries acted on their own uh, and um, did what they needed to do to protect the population. And yeah, I wonder though, Jim, uh, is there a scale issue? So if you, if you look at the three countries, one, two, and three, in terms of, uh, let's argue, uh, probably badly handled from a policy perspective, from a national policy perspective, uh, that's the U.S., Brazil, and India. Uh, they are large countries with large populations. Uh, they have sort of autonomous regions within that country. Uh, and um, and so, you know, I, I wondered, there are two issues there. One is one of scale. Um, you know, it's easy for Denmark or Finland uh, you know, to, to, to have a national policy and implement it effectively. Uh, but when you get to some, some large number, it becomes more difficult. And the other axis there is, is it sort of a structural issue, which is, you know, all three of these countries that seem to have done poorly uh, seem to have autonomous regions within them. Well, sure. But there's nothing small about China. Yeah. And um, even yeah, of course, China is autocratic, um, but um, it managed to do a, a far better job of handling the outbreak than the United States. And I certainly am not one who wants to praise many things about China, but you have to give credit where it's due. And um, it's an enormous country. It has semi-autonomous regions. Mm. And... Um, and yet um, they were able to bring the uh, virus under control relatively rapidly through um, pretty intense measures, I must say. Um, measures that probably wouldn't have worked in the US, but, um, but some kind of middle ground along the lines of what was used in Europe uh, would, or might have worked in the U.S., but the point is we didn't do anything in the U.S. You know, we still don't have a national policy. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, um, there's just uh, complete neglect here. And, um, you know, and that's um, that's like negligent homicide. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, one way we can... So we'll come back to the policy question again. Uh, one one way we can get ahead of this is sort of predicting uh, evolution, predicting transmission. Um, Jeff, you know, are, are there tools now available for us to maybe get ahead of this in the future? Well, well, we we 
the best the best way to predict the future is by seeing what has been happening so far. So we we know that pathogens do trans cross into human populations, and we know we can see that it happens consistently, and it can, happens in consistent ways. So, for example, many of the uh, zoonotic diseases that we've seen in the past couple of decades have come from wildlife that ha and from from the trade in bushmeat and the exotic pet pop, uh, trade and uh, other kinds of trades that deal with uh, wildlife, um, particularly in, in the context of deforestation. Deforestation um, increases human contact and uh, the contact of human livestock with, with animal, with wild populations and whatever infectious diseases they have. So looking at, the, I mean, this is where HIV came from. This is where the Ebola comes from. So we can target those populations for surveillance to know to get a, get ahead of these things in the future. We can uh, enact policies to make those um, those trades less frequent if if we can and uh, and uh, safer for the people who do to to uh, do interact with wildlife populations. Yeah. And that's that's the best best way for us to get a handle on it. Like so, for example, uh, the uh, Eco Health Alliance was uh, collaborating with uh, the Wuhan, this virology institute in Wuhan. They were doing surveillance of uh, various populations in China for coronaviruses, and they were finding that you know in populations that interact with wildlife had antibody exposure to various coronaviruses in the range of like 3% or something like this. So they were conducting this kinds of surveillance to know, so we can get a better handle of where the the next uh, pathogen epidemic is going to be coming from. Yeah, yeah, Fred, you know, it's sort of embarrassing if you think about in there of big data and artificial intelligence that, you know, we have been able to really uh, do a good job around this. You know, I know that Johns Hopkins and others have collected a lot of data and putting it out there, sort of an accounting exercise. Um, but, you know, just like we do in other industries, um, the, this type of data is going to be quite powerful, right, for us to reach better policies. Yeah, completely. And I think, you know, that is one of the ridiculous things about what I find frustrating as a researcher that a lot of this data about positive cases, case testing, this isn't available, this isn't done by the federal government. You know, these are kind of news organizations like the New York Times or the Atlantic, volunteers and hospitals who are like tabulating stuff and putting it in Excel spreadsheets and sharing it. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, at a national level in the US and in other countries as well, arguably, that should be something that should be already being done, right? We should be recording things on a much better more precise scale. So then when, you know, after the fact, we can go back and analyze. And I would just, you know, make a point that Jeff's making as well. It's no surprise that this, um, I think for scientists working on coronaviruses, that this has happened. I mean, this, if you read like a lot of the literature, I mean, it's okay, it's hindsight's twenty twenty, but there's an awful lot of papers that say mm -hmm. one of the next big coronaviruses is gonna come from a bat population, it's probably gonna be China. Um, and it could be devastating. I mean, so it's um, perhaps surprising for the public and people who don't work in that specific subfield. But I think these kind of things have been known and have been an area of concern for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, and also, yeah, so once you get the raw materials, so there, there are two issues there. One is having a national, quick national way to uh, have the raw materials, meaning all the data that we can collect. And then, you know, we have technologies now that could be deployed on that data to create insights. Uh, for example, I'm still sort of puzzled by, if you look at the case fatality ratio, um, you know, across the world, uh, it ranges anywhere from, you know, upwards of 10% to less than 1%. And that, that's, a, that's a big range. And so, so if you if you ask why why is it different you know one one difference could be that the population infected you have to control for age you have to control for pre-existing conditions but even with those attributes controlled for you still see fair amount of variance there i don't know if you have any insights as to why that is the case 
There are a lot of things that can go into that. Um, we've known for a long time that not only do you have to control for demographics like age and exposure, but uh, the, the course of the epidemic will affect the number that you calculate. So deaths are typically delayed from positive cases by uh, several weeks or even months. Yeah. It takes, you know, so as at the beginning of an epidemic, as case numbers are going up, we, we, we can count the number of people that we've detected to be infected, but some of those people will later die. So yeah. that the number we calculate is all just by this who's died and who's been infected so far, we already know that's gonna be an undercount when case numbers are going up. And also we know that uh, that, that number can also be overcounted with, because depending on how, um, how many individuals get infected but don't show symptoms and don't get, get tested to be positive cases. And that is determined by lots of things, like how strongly are we testing for uh, the virus? You know, what is our surveillance like? Uh, what is our reporting situation like? That can vary very strongly uh, over time and, uh, and across countries and across states and localities as well. Yeah. And yeah. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, yeah. I was going to jump in and say, and also just on a biological level, we also don't know. So some people seem to be infected and the health outcome is very bad. They get very sick, right? Um, part of that, I think, you know, we've seen the things have improved over time as treatment plans have gotten better, like doctors have become, you know, working in emergency rooms around the country dealing with this. There are now better treatment plans in place. So kind of survival rates have gone up marginally, but also we don't know why some individuals are so badly affected. And so it's presumably something to do with their immune system and how their immune system responds. And the immune system, as it turns out, is incredibly complicated, but there are kind of, we do have, um, we actually have a colleague here at the University of Missouri, St. Louis, Charlie Clymer, who um, uses kind of AI approaches and advanced computing to look for patterns in, you know, immune reactions and how that might correspond to your health, your, your kind of health outcome when you get infected with COVID to see if we can try to make predictions about what makes some people really sick and how come it doesn't affect others. And that's presumably due to differences, some kind of fundamental difference in how our immune system is responding. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so if it is purely a timing uh, difference, you know, uh, we look at, you know, if you look at Italy, Belgium, Hungary, France, they're all higher than 10% case fatality ratio. Um, it, it might be that we learned how to treat these patients. I think when you go on in a ventilator, I think your chance of getting out of that is only about 10%. Um, so that was sort of the initial um, modality of care, which I think uh, we seem to have moved away from. Um, but there's still significant difference. So what, you know, what would be interesting also to think about, like you say, uh, Fred, is, you know, are, are there... Um, are there attributes that we can think about in terms of other types of vaccinations people have gone through, um, you know, other flu attacks that populations have, uh, have gotten uh, that has some sort of correlation with their ability to, um, to resist this? Uh, but yeah. I haven't seen anything, yeah. I think there's, a, there's some work, and it's, you know, so that's the problem, right? So a lot of the kind of <laughs> um, communicating new and developing science is tricky because things change very quickly. And yeah. that's just part of the scientific process. So some studies that seem promising to begin with turn out to not be as promising as we, as we get more data points. But there's maybe some evidence that if you've recently had an MMR vaccine, there might be some cross reactivity to, you know, um, COVID-19, yeah. SARS-CoV and two virus. But who knows? That may or may not be true. It may be that also you might have some cross reactivity. So your immune system might have been primed because of previous viruses you've been exposed to. So if you've had previous virus like coronavirus infections, maybe your immune system is better able to respond. But that's speculative at best. Um, and maybe that's going to come out. Uh, but it's, it's plausible. We know this happens for other diseases where you have something very similar. You can think of cowpox and smallpox, for example, where mm. cowpox is different from smallpox, but it gives you uh, resistance to smallpox virus. There's also some evidence with uh, the 1918 flu that, that might suggest the, there's an effect in the opposite direction. So 1918 flu was uh, especially harmful, especially deadly to people within a certain, deadly, within a certain um, age range of like 18 to 35, which is unusual for flu. And uh, there is some evidence that, that the harmful effects of the 1918 flu on those, those individuals 
may have been because when the, 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 those people in that age range, their first exposure to influenza was a different uh, type of influenza. The, the first type of influenza you're exposed to as a, as a, usually as a child uh, provides the most immunity. But these were, rather than being the, the, the HN type of, that was the 1918 flu, there was a slightly different one. Hmm. And it may be that having that initial experience with a different type of influenza primed them to have immune responses that weren't as protective or weren't as uh, good for them, I guess. Yeah, it, it's, um, you know, the, the one thing that we haven't even discussed, and I don't know if we are even able to discuss this, and that is, and we talked about this in a recent podcast, is the long-term effects of people recovering from COVID. Uh, for example, the 1918-19 Spanish flu uh, you know, there is evidence that says about a million people who recovered from that uh, uh, later, 10 years later or so, uh, got Parkinson's disease. Um, and so if we see analogs here between uh, Spanish flu and COVID, uh, th- when you think about the disease burden um, in, in totality, it's going to be substantially different from, you know, what people are com- currently computing. You know, which is like, yeah, you got it, you got over it, and uh, and that's that. It may not be, right? And so, you know, the issue here also, Fred, is in a world that is sort of separated, in my view, there is a scientific world, which is increasingly shrinking, and there is a non-scientific world. And the question is, how do you communicate and, and present information and hypotheses and data in a way that, that let's call that non-scientific world, internalize and act on? I think it's incredibly difficult, right? Um, I think, you know, perhaps traditionally, scientists have been seen as working in some kind of ivory tower and occasionally dispensing some information that might help the population at large. I think that format has to change. I think as scientists... You know, um, it is really important to try to explain the scientific process, how things work in any kind of medium or format that you can. But I think a lot of it is also just increasing scientific literacy of the general population, um, making people aware of how the scientific process works, of uncertainty. You know, this idea that you know, we don't always know, but it doesn't mean, we, you know, just because we're uncertain about some things doesn't mean that other things are, you know, therefore uncertain. Yeah. But in this case, I think it's also very difficult because you can see the same data and you can enact completely different, you can come up with completely different conclusions, right? So, you know, you can take the example, uh, so my home country of Sweden, where very early on the government decided, okay, this is terrible, but we're going to not have imposed these kind of strict lockdowns. We're going to try to actually achieve herd immunity, whereby we infect enough of the population so that the virus can no longer spread. Um, and that's, you know, I think sensible, scientists who are looking at the same data and make a very different you know, mm. policy choice. And so I think it must be, it is confusing for people say, well, how come Sweden's doing it this way? And somewhere like the US has ad hoc, you know, uh, sometimes things get locked down, sometimes things don't. So I think this kind of difference in messaging, difference in strategies, even as a scientist, makes it very confusing to know what's, you know, what's actually real and what's not real. Yeah, it's really challenging. And, you know, talking about uncertainty, uh, Jim, you know, there is, there is, I think there's a lot of optimism around vaccines and drugs and coming from Pfizer, both of us know <laughs> what that looks like. Uh, you know, uh, so there was a phase one trial. I won't, I won't mention the company's name. Um, 40, 50 people, typically male under 40, go through a phase one trial to look for safety for a product. And eight of them... Um, eight of them developed antibodies and, you know, market went up 200%, all sorts of things broke loose, Uh, vaccine, uh, you know, people, you know, setting up manufacturing processes to manufacture this thing. Um, You know, from your perspective, where do you think we are in terms of vaccines and drugs? Well, you know, we're in very early days and basically until we have a drug that's been approved, we don't have a drug. You know, we, ha- we might have drugs that are in development, but most drugs fail in the development process. 
they fail for safety reasons, they fail because they don't meet the efficacy requirements of the FDA, um, they fail for a lot of reasons. Um, uh, they might fail because uh, the company can't make the drug pure enough to meet the FDA requirements. And that can happen with um, biological agents, and so uh, which these vaccines are. Um, and so um, having promising early results is great because that's what you want but it's not very meaningful in terms of actually reaching the market with an approved drug. Of course, it's the first step that you need, but since most drugs fail between that first step and reaching the marketplace, uh, it's nothing to get overly hopeful about. And uh, one thing that you mentioned about uh, the clinical trials mostly being done with men is also something that's a very worrying trend that has been going on for far too long in the pharmaceutical industry. Women are, are highly underrepresented in many clinical trials, and therefore side effects in women are often not found until drugs are on the marketplace, and um, that can be a severe problem. So um, pharmaceutical companies need to um, be better at recruiting women and minorities, especially into clinical trials, especially in this case, because minorities are so hard hit by coronavirus and um, are uh, the biggest uh, victims. Uh, they're much overrepresented in the victim group of coronavirus uh, compared to their uh, percent population in the United States, at least. Yeah. And so, um, uh, there are all kinds of things that can that can go wrong, and that whether it's a vaccine or a drug that's being developed. So uh, you know, I don't want to throw a wet blanket over everything. I mean, there are a lot of brilliant scientists who are working on developing drugs and vaccines, and um, I certainly believe in the process overall. But to say that because these companies are currently at a certain stage means that we will have a drug or a vaccine at a particular date is is just magical thinking you know yeah. uh, we won't have a drug until we have a drug that's been approved and nobody knows nobody knows how long that will take and when that will happen yeah and in the in the case of vaccines jim i can't quite remember so if you're doing a phase three trial in, in a vaccine, um, you, you know, you're doing a, a placebo-controlled, uh, double-blind, randomized trial. So you have to infect, um, you know, one pop. sorry, you have to uh, vaccinate one population and essentially wait, right, to see uh, if it is effective unless you do some kind of a challenge trial attempting Absolutely. to infect people. Absolutely. And most vaccines require... Um, or many vaccines require multiple injections over a period of perhaps a year. Um, so, or at least six months, but often a year. And so um, you, you can't even begin to measure whether they're effective or not until the full complement of, of injections has been given. Yeah. And, and so, um, you know, we're a long way from uh, giving a, a year's worth of injections to uh, a, a large number of volunteers. Now, who knows, maybe it won't take three injections over six months or a year for, uh, for a, a COVID-19 vaccine. But, you know, we'll, we'll have to find out how many injections it'll take. Yeah, it'll take more than one. Right. Yeah, that is that is uh, that is sort of troubling. So, Jeff, you know, going back to the mutation question, um, I read that there, there were kind of two types of uh, COVID. Uh, one is called the S type and the one other is called the L types. And one of the mutations increased the, the number of spike proteins on the surface. And the, if the S and L forms uh, are distinctly different, uh, would that automatically imply we need multiple vaccines? 
Uh, no, it wouldn't necessarily mean that we need multiple vaccines because vaccines tend to target specific regions on on viruses and the 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 differences among these types of uh, viruses may not have any effect on what the vac what uh, the immune system is seeing. I should also say that that some of that evidence about the different types of coronaviruses is still uh, iffy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are lots of mut viruses mutate all the time. Every you know, every time they go their round of production, there's typically mut new mutations introduced. And what we're worried about is th how, whether those mutations affect the, the severity of disease or the infectiousness. Um, so it's a little bit early to tell whether those two different types um, are affecting those things. They could have just been in the in the right place at the right time, and it happened to be in a place where there was lots of transmission. Um, I think there is some evidence that they're better at attaching to human cells, but how that transmits, how that translates to infectiousness or severity of disease is, is it yet known? Yeah, so, so I wondered, uh, you know, uh, as Fred was saying before, this transmission uh, severity trade-off, uh, in the big data context, um, we are picking up a lot of data from all around the world. Are there techniques we can use on that data to... Not not perfectly, but you know, to to assign some probability, how many different varieties we might be dealing with. Well, the problem is that that there's lots of different sequences of virus sequences out there, and it's a very non-trivial problem to figure out how those sequences affect the 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 biology of the virus. Some of those mutations are basically have no effect. They're in parts of the genome that don't code for proteins or or make a change in a protein that that is non-consequential. So it, we're we're not at the stage where we can look at it look at a sequence and say, okay, this is more infectious, this is less infectious. That's that's something that people are very much trying to do now. Mm. But but we but predicting those the important phenotypes, the, the important viral traits from sequences is, is still a long ways off. Yeah, yeah. And uh and, and Fred, you know, uh so when we think about back to sort of how do we take care of this, one of the policy prescriptions obviously is the testing and tracing uh, policy, um, we had a lot of difficulties implementing it. There were uh, big differences in quality of tests that that seem to be uh, getting better now. Uh, but this testing and tracing uh, intervention, unless you do it early in the episode, it is almost impossible to really do it, right? Yeah, that's one of the really difficult things and it also has to be like nationwide or you know can't just be again there was some early test and trace but it was quite ad hoc um and now of course the virus is probably so widely spread it's difficult to um to do that but even then you know look there will be and there are reoccurring local outbreaks so we've kind of we're moving past this kind of initial spread and um well <laughs> to some extent, but and so we're going to see pockets of outbreaks over the coming months. And so actually test and trace could still be useful, right? Because we might want to know um, where it's spreading most, where these outbreaks are happening and to isolate people. I think that's the other thing as well. There's, you know, I have friends of friends who've, you know, gotten coronavirus. Uh, luckily, most of them have been okay. But, you know, you call up your doctor and they, you know, I, you ask, should I get tested? The doctor's like, nah, don't worry about it. But you think, well, actually, it would be useful to know if you have the coronavirus because that has consequences for how you might want to behave or the kind of decisions you want to make. So now, now the scenario is if you have any kind of flu-like symptoms, you just have to you know, assume it's coronavirus and stay home. And for many people, that's not feasible, you know, you'd really, because uh, you have to go into work, for example. Um, but yeah, so it is, it is disappointing that you know, we had this opportunity to do this and we haven't. And then, as you mentioned, some of the kind of early testing, that's still, uh, yeah, the testing is getting better, particularly the antibody testing. But a lot of these kind of tests we rely on are PCR-based. So we try to amplify uh, bits of the genetic information that the virus carries, so bits of DNA. So we try to, to see if it's there. And the like, kind of false positive rates are still surprisingly high you know you get amplification when there isn't stuff you get bad amplification pcr although it's a wonderful technology is still somewhat finicky and um yeah i'd, I'd be curious 
after well i'd be curious to actually know because i've been uh been involved in helping some local facilities that do some t testing because they're having huge issues with just kind of this fundamental technique this pcr um yeah. issues and so yeah which makes the kind of underlying data quality somewhat suspect unfortunately yeah it seems like we're getting better there was something out of yale called saliva direct um that that seems to that got uh, fast track approval and i believe university of illinois developed something and uh, they're testing all the students on campus or something like that i don't know the details of it yeah uh, but there's still a huge variety in like how people are going about testing so people say yeah. oh, i'm getting tested um and you think like, oh what's it going to be it's going to be a pcr based test well even within the pcr based, based test there's lots of different kits and, and ways that people are doing this so I, you're right, it is getting better, but uh, it's taken an awful, I mean, how many months in are we now? And it's <laughs> only recently, I feel like, have been drastic improvements. So I should say that um, the technology may be getting better, but uh, we're not, we're not, based on the epidemiology that we've been seeing uh, of case numbers, we're not getting ahead of the virus. So one of the ways that we can tell, like, how, how well we're testing for the virus is by looking at what fraction of tests come back as positive so the so that if we're if we only have enough tests to test the people who are most likely to be infected we have a very high positive rate and but if we're testing lots of people then that positive rate goes down and we're testing all the potential contacts and getting more and more people who uh, aren't negative and so based on the information that we've been looking at in illinois missouri and elsewhere in the nation uh, where where our testing effort, our testing uh, efforts are actually falling behind the cases that the positivity rate, well, the number of tests per positive rate has been going down since it looks like June here. Yeah. So, so we could, there's still lots more to do on the testing point if we were to try to implement uh, a test and trace uh, strategy. Yeah, I, I have to say um, in the tri-state area here in New York area, at the, at the height of our uh, sort of um, epidemic, pandemic here, um, you know, lack of uh, personal protective equipment uh, and even, you know, simple, simple things that medical professionals need to take care of patients were not available. You know, it looked very much like a developing country in Africa, I have to say. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think we have gotten a lot better. Uh, Jim, I know that you are involved in, um, you know, the, the PPE. It's not just the manufacturing of it, but also, um, you know, reuse of the PPE as well, right? There are, there are a lot of things that we learned, I think, in this episode. Right. So sterilization um, of PPE for reuse is something that um, for, can be done by large hospitals that have very expensive hydrogen peroxide-based machines, and um, a lot of uh, entrepreneurial companies have developed other uh, technologies for sterilizing PPE using uh, UV light, for example, and um, there are other approaches as well um, that are out there um, that can be um, harnessed, but um, nothing, I think, has really been uh, produced on a large enough scale to reach it, to reach the level of every doctor's office and um, every ambulance and every police station or police car um, and every first responder so that they can sterilize PPE as frequently as they need to. And um, we're starting to see a shortage once again of, of masks and um, other sorts of PPE uh, as uh, hospitals, for example, in Texas and Arizona and Florida are, are remain extremely full. And so, and, and it's impossible for um, the consumer to buy sterilizing wipes in the, in the grocery store. Mm -hmm. They're just completely sold out, at least in this area. So, um, you know, that's a, a problem. But I, I think there's another area that um, is um, divorced from theories of um, of the disease or or testing that is completely being ignored, 
and that could go a long way towards stopping the spread of the disease. And that is that our building infrastructures are simply inadequate and they could be fixed. Um, one of the main things that could be done is controlling the humidity in buildings. And there's a study that is by Stephanie Taylor, who's an infection control consultant at Harvard Medical School that shows that keeping the humidity between 40 and 60% actually makes a huge difference in um, blo blocking the spread of the disease in buildings. And um, there are a number of reasons for this. And um, one of the reasons is that when the air is too dry, uh, large droplets don't fall to the ground as quickly as they normally would, and they um, become small droplets, aerosols, that float in the air longer. And um, so they can float to people, and um, they can also go to surfaces that become contaminated. Mm. And um, also, um, apparently, uh, airborne viruses like uh, coronavirus aren't as infectious when they float through moist air compared to dry air. And that process isn't well understood, um, although there are theories to explain it. And finally, uh, our own respiratory immune system works better in, great hum in greater humidity. Mm. And that's been shown um, uh, through research on mice. And one of the reasons is that our mucus layers are simply more um, protective in our respiratory systems uh, and they prevent viruses from attaching, but there are a lot of other reasons as well that all add up to giving us better um, immunoprotection from viruses in higher humidity. However, once, uh, but both air conditioning and central heating dry out the air and uh, leave us at the mercy of um, respiratory uh, or airborne viruses. And uh, nothing is being done in most in, you know, with a few exceptions, perhaps, uh, in, in the entire country to address this relatively straightforward uh, problem. And it could be done on a room-by-room -room basis with humidifiers or building-by-building -building basis. And that's even ignoring the fact that HEPA filters uh, could be used to filter out the virus, uh, the airborne virus, from uh, building uh, circular air circulation systems. Yeah. So, so, anyway, no, go ahead. Yeah, I was, so there are specific engineering controls that could be put in place to make buildings safer where people work, and um, and they, you know, uh, I hope they're being put in place. But I certainly know of no examples in places that I'm familiar with where that's being done. Yeah, uh, it's it's a one-time investment, right? So you're not just talking about hospitals; you're talking about uh, office buildings, pretty much any any uh, building that uh, uh, a group of people are are, are living together, sitting together. Uh, right. It's it's a one-time investment that has a lot of positive effects, not just for COVID, but generally speaking, right? A absolutely, and hospitals do have this type of. Uh, Maybe not for humidity, but they, they do have uh, HEPA filters in place in their uh, yeah. in their air handling, um, and so um, you know that that's a, a very good thing. And um, uh, air, airplanes have HEPA filters, so although the air is recirculated many many times in an airplane, uh, the viruses are filtered out very effectively, uh, and um, and and that makes it. Uh, relatively safe to travel in an airplane. Mm. But um, any other building that we're in is uh, very unlikely to have those safety, um, uh, uh, those safeguards in place. Yeah, yeah. So, so in conclusion, um, I, I have a question for all of you, and that is, um, you know, what have we learned from this episode? So if, if this were to happen again, uh, what will we do? That's question number one. What, what are the things that we have to focus on? That's question number one. Question number two is, 
to to detect and manage something like this worldwide uh it appears to me at least we are missing something we are not really applying technology to the to the highest level so if we can identify something beginning to start then we have a much higher uh chance of controlling it so what can we do sort of a worldwide monitoring perspective uh you know to to do something along those lines so jim do you want to go first well i think the first thing i would say is that the question is not if this happens again but when it happens again yeah. because it will happen again and um and i think that uh many of these programs were put in place and were dismantled so um we need to get back to doing what we were doing and uh we need to ramp up even those efforts but um i think that one of the most obvious things is that if there is a test available for a virus then we need to use that test rather than trying to invent our own test in the united states mm. and taking the time that it takes to do that rather than simply implementing an existing test and and wasting all of those many weeks that it takes to develop a homegrown test when something is available from the world health organization that's perfectly functional and could be implemented immediately um, right so that way you know contact tracing and testing could be put in place right away and and we might not have this problem that we have now of people waiting 7 days to 9 days to to get their test results which is still happening as we speak yeah so rapid development of technology for testing i think south korea did that pretty well uh and and essentially catching it early uh is the key but do you do you also see any sort of worldwide monitoring that that might be useful oh absolutely um but as i say it, it was going on and it was shut yeah. down okay so you know uh, we need to go back to that and we need to be a part of the world health organization and we need to fund the uh groups that were uh monitoring uh emerging diseases in in china and uh in the amazon and uh in other areas where uh deforestation is uh, is causing human habitat to encroach on previously uninhabited areas where there are unusual uh where there's unusual animal life that humans haven't come into contact with before which are hot spots for um uh disease developments uh, in africa as well yes Yeah, Fred. Yeah, so you know what can we learn from this? Um well, I guess one of the things positives, there's not a lot of positives in this, you know, <laughs> tragedy tragedy um this unfolding. But some of the kind of epidemiological modeling that's mm-hmm. been done over the last few months has been just really like top-notch and the kind of spread of the disease has been kind of accurately predicted and you know imposed different types of kind of intervention measures. And again once these things have been imposed the models have done really well and been able to predict which I find surprising to a high degree of accuracy how these things um how the disease has been spreading which I think that's that's good and that's impressive and that's why we do this kind of basic science and and I would argue that to continue to do this we'll need to a big investment in basic science again across the board for, for that can be in terms of monitoring but also you know some of the most promising vaccines were developed you know by universities um and for example the university of oxford where they originally just looking at sort of ebola right so kind of not very much money in this area but you know basic science feeds into industry and investment in basic science is really important and during these kind of pandemics um i think it highlights the need the urgent need for continued and sustained investment right because you never know where the solution to a potential new infectious disease is going to come from um and then finally i think we just need more scientific literacy amongst policy makers and the general public because even if we can identify where the pathogen is coming from um how it's going to spread unless people act on that information it doesn't matter and you know there's just a huge disconnect between the people who make decisions 
and the kind of understanding of even basic concepts in science. And so no matter how good the science is or our monitoring is, if people don't respond in the appropriate way, then it's really all for nothing. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of ironic, Fred, you know, some of these models that even started building in policy knobs on them, which is if you do a stupid policy this way, this is the number. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's almost like we, we can't uh, we can get over it, right? Um, yeah. It's uh, hopefully, hopefully we learn from it. Uh, Jeff? Yeah, well, the thing that's been most surprising for me about the way the pandemic has progressed is not that it happened, but how uh, governments have responded and how people have responded. Like people have been interested in preparing for, for situations exactly like this since, since, since at least 2003, when the first SARS pandemic, Many of the people who are epidemiological models and involved in ecology and evolution of infectious disease, many of those people are my colleagues. And, uh, and I think it's been surprising to all of us just like how, how, how we, we have even, you know, to the, it's always hard to know exactly what to do, but we do have really good ideas about how infectious disease works and how interventions work. And even with the best science, governments have decided to do something else. That's what's been most surprising to me, is that we haven't been acting on the best science for one way or another. And, you know, and, I, and to some extent, that's a policy issue that I, you know, I'm not, I'm not as a big policy person, but I wonder, we, we have organizations built with a built-in certain kind of independence, like the Federal Reserve is built in a certain way to be uh, resistant to political influence. I, I, I don't know as much about that, but it, all I can think of is wonder, is there some way we can institute uh, through, through, through laws where, where you know, we, we need to be acting on the best science rather than have, be at the whims of whoever happens to be in charge at the moment to sort of dismissing people or hiring people based on how, what, how their opinions vary right. their, their own. Yeah, that's a great point, Jeff. You know, uh, CDC and FDA are supposed to be entities like that. But but as you say, we don't have explicit laws uh, such as Federal Reserve. Uh, maybe that is that is something, you know, it, it's something to, to consider. You know, I also see sort of a, a clash between science and popular culture. And, you know, that that is not that is not something you can correct very easily. Um, I think uh, the latest number I saw was there is a quarter of uh, the country, uh, US, and I think this is generally true worldwide, uh, people believing that the sun goes around a flat earth today. <laughs> and it is a belief system that science cannot really, um, I don't know if science can really do a lot about that. Um, and so, you know, so there, there is a kind of a systemic issue there. I also strongly believe that, as, uh, as Fred was saying, and I, I think you were saying, Jeff, that uh, the policy questions are so complex now, it requires experts to do the, to, to make the policy decisions. Um, you know, just, just getting a law degree or just getting a business degree might not be enough to make uh, a complex decision in the area of population health, you know, uh, areas like that, life sciences, for example, in general. And so perhaps we need some sort of a competency test uh, for policymakers before they take up the jobs. Um, with, you know, this, this problem, I think, is going to get worse and worse as we go into the future. Uh, things are only going to get more complex, not simple, I think. Yeah, and it's frustrating as, as a scientist because you, you want, you know, as a scientist, our, our, our job is to, to the best of our, our ability, figure out how the, the, the natural world works, right? And, uh, and we hope to provide information and knowledge and experience so that we can act in ways that are most desirable for, for, for us. And, and, and having trust in that information, to some extent, means avoiding politics and saying, well, we want to, we don't want our political views to influence how, the, the, the experience we give. And so 
you know, it's it's hard even as a as an individual to like know, you know, how how involved should I be in, in these things? I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to contribute to people dismissing scientific evidence because because scientists like everybody have political opinions. But at the same time, uh, it's it's impossible to stay on, you know, totally independent of that. And that's that's something that that is difficult to navigate. Absolutely. Yeah. I think independence, like you say, I think is going to be the key. The systemic effects are going to be more difficult to, uh, difficult to uh, correct. Uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll be in a better position uh, next time uh, we go through this. Uh, this has been great, uh, Jim, Fred and Jeff. Uh, thanks so much for spending time with me and good luck with everything that, that, you, that you're doing. Thank you. It's been great. Yeah. Thanks, Gil. It's been a really interesting conversation. Absolutely. Thank you.